0: Hi, I'm Shereen Batik, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. Direct-to-consumer companies often feel like they've only just cropped up over the last year or two, but my guest today sees things very differently. Derek Lowe is a co-founder at Lowe & Sons, a direct-to-consumer bag company that's been in business since 2010, which feels a really long time ago. Hi, Derek.
1: Hi. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: It does feel like a long time ago, right? Like a lot of, it's so funny because a lot of the brands we've had on the show They've had these, like, growth trajectories over the last two years. Most of them are very, very young um, and very, very big or feels like very, very big very quickly. And I'm so excited to have you on because I think being around since 2010, you're profitable, you're growing, and you're doing so sustainably. And I'm excited to hear the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well... Again, thanks for having me. Um, I'm I'm definitely a fan of the podcast and have heard a lot of the conversations that you've had with some of the other founders.
0: Sounds good. So let's go back to the beginning. Why start the company? And sort of what were the circumstances around starting Low &
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It really came from my mom's personal story and need. We're kind of a global family and my dad was an astronomer. My mom and him kind of lived all over the world and immigrated to the US uh, and got their PhDs in Boston and then lived in California and then moved to Champaign, Illinois. And so during that experience, um, my mom sort of had to travel a lot. And uh, when she eventually retired, she basically started traveling a lot with my dad for personal reasons. And has, you know, uh, when she got into her 60s, she started having really bad back and neck and shoulder issues. And so... Um, she started blogging about lightweight travel products because she really needed to uh, discover things that were not only lightweight, but also stylish. Mm-hmm. And she actually asked me and my brother to help start a Tumblr blog. Uh, <laughs> and I I said no, but my brother actually said yes. And so my brother at the time was living in Beijing and uh, she ended up starting this Tumblr blog. And during that uh, research, she discovered that you know, one of the, the product categories that she was greatly needing, something that was lightweight and stylish was bags.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And my brother at the time was DJing professionally in China, but also uh, working in consulting for a product design research con- consultancy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he lamented was you do all this research, but you actually don't get to build anything. And you you, you hand off this research to a company and you, right. you just don't get to follow through. And so... Um, he was like, why don't you just make your own? And she said, okay, why don't you help me? And he said, oh, crap. <laughs> like, I've got to help my mom make this thing. Um, and so he did all the product design research, development. Um, and at the time, I was working in advertising. Uh-huh. And so uh, on a vacation in Hawaii, we're sitting on the beach, and my mom is sort of explaining this to me. And she's, she's sort of, like, Derek, you want to join this company? Uh, we're we're going to do it. And I said, Why not? And I left uh, advertising in January of 2010. And we spent all of 2010 doing product design, research, development, Mm -hmm. uh, going to the factories, uh, learning the ropes, and eventually launched with a website in December of 2010.
0: Okay. So you... You started with the website, you were selling online and I, I remember because uh, as we were just talking about, you know, I did happen to buy a bag and I remember there yeah. being a wait list. Yeah. And I remember having to wait like I think two or three months for it. Um... But you were only selling online. You had not at the time approached, you hadn't started making these bags and approached, I don't know, a a wholesale kind of situation to say, hey, we're going to, we're making these bags. They're great. Why don't you sell them? You wanted to sell these yourselves.
1: Yeah, so what's funny is that we actually originally built the website more as a transactional mechanism. So our original business model was actually to do trunk shows to go around and sell in person these products because we felt like they were really expensive Uh, They were really functional and they needed a lot of like explanation and education and we we sort of felt there were limitations with selling online with that so Mm -hmm. my brother and I originally when we launched we went to three different cities and did trunk shows (laughs) in each of them and and then my mom was like oh we got to do a trade show so we did a trade show uh, and basically got one order at the trade show and we sort of were like oh my gosh what are we going to do and so Three months after launching, I was doing this research online and I've discovered a a really popular lifestyle blog and we did our first lifestyle blog sponsorship and it was a giveaway and we sold out of our products, uh, our top selling products within that month. And, you know, and then it was like, oh my gosh, what do we do?
0: (laughs) We have to make more of them. Yeah. Uh, Let's go back there for a minute because you you mentioned, yes, the bags aren't cheap. Um, So average price at the time, I mean, I think you were selling a couple were what?
1: Yeah, the, the average price point was $290. $290. Yeah. So
0: did you feel like, okay, nobody's going to buy a $290 bag on the internet, which is why sort of the physical, like the explanation or the education, almost like why buy this bag yeah. was important. And that's yeah. changed, right? Yeah, like People are changed. now buying things people that are, now are way more.
1: So yeah, everybody's so used to buying expensive goods online. and But yeah, at the time, you know, it was kind of in its infancy and people weren't really as uh, culturally accustomed to that. So, um, yeah, that was a big part of it, but it was also just the nature of the product itself. We, we felt like the bags were really clean and minimal on the exterior, and there were a lot of things that we needed to educate people on on the interior. Mm-hmm. And so—and um, we were also weren't coming from, you know, the industry. We weren't coming from fashion or we weren't coming from travel, and so we didn't feel like we had the same kind of brand legitimacy to just sort of say, hey, here's our brand— trust that this is going to be high quality. Um, So yeah, that was all a big factor in it.
0: How did you get customers? uh, You did this giveaway, worked with a blogger, etc. But how did you get kind of your first real big group of customers? What was your customer acquisition strategy in the early days?
1: Oh, man, that the customer acquisition strategy was a lot of product seeding, to be honest, like we and the, the early days of digital marketing, it was, you know, I don't know if you remember, but it was mostly bloggers. It wasn't like, it wasn't even Instagram or Facebook. It was like bloggers. And so I was really just reaching out personally to a lot of these early women's lifestyle bloggers, uh, product seating, and then the ones that really enjoyed the products, I would follow up with them and just, you know, try and, try and spread the word and partner with them and sponsor them on different giveaways or, um, stories and, that was the earliest like acquisition strategy which just counts kind, of, kind of sounds crazy now because nobody really does right. you know that as much anymore
0: so what at what point do you sort of feel like you know it's been you've been in business almost 10 years um, at what point did it sort of start feeling like okay this is a business that this is a business yeah. this is a business that's gonna grow 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 um, and you hadn't taken funding or yeah. anything
1: we, it was it was a hundred percent it's still a hundred percent family owned. My parents remortgaged their homes, which they don't recommend doing in your 60s. Uh, My brother and I both put in our, you know, what little life savings we had into the business. And um, I think probably in 2016, 2017, it really started to feel like, oh, wow, this is a legitimate thing. And that's that's like six years after launching. So um, I think even to this day, you know, I kind of have to pinch myself and, you know, to just remember that, like we're a full-fledged multi-million-dollar business, uh, we have customers in all all states of the U.S. and you know it 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 doesn't feel real sometimes for sure.
0: And you're profitable.
1: Yes, yeah, we've been profitable since year three, which is kind of astounding. And um, yeah, it's it it hasn't been easy. Um, I think you know for the past I want to say three to four years, it's obviously gotten more competitive in the space. You know, with tariff wars, it's gotten more expensive to, you know, to produce things uh, globally, you know, marketing costs have gone up. So uh, it's definitely been harder, but yeah, like... For us, you know, we we pride ourselves on being, you know, having been profitable for many years.
0: So let's let's break, start breaking those down. Um, let's start with marketing because yeah. you're also the chief marketing officer yes. and you have a background, obviously, in advertising. Um, you mentioned early days, you know, very different kind of world, you know, bloggers reaching out to them yeah. saying, hey, look, we have a great product, try it on, et cetera. Um, how has your marketing strategy evolved, especially as all this competition come come up? Yeah. How do you sell a great product that isn't cheap but is a good product in the age of Instagram and has a bunch of competition around it. Everyone's sick and tired of seeing new brands come up. <laughs> uh, how do you stand out? What's your differentiator and what's worked?
1: It's I've been thinking a lot about this lately and, and you know, obviously I want to think that the the quality of our creative and our branding continues to get better and that's a big reason for our success, but You know, I also have to give credit to the actual product. Um, You know, we do an extreme amount of product design research, development. Some of our bags take two to three years to develop and to get released. And when they do come out, regardless of whether we put a lot of money into them, most of the time we have people who, are you know, rave about their experiences with it. Um, And so I think, you know, as we look at the landscape and the competition, a lot of times we'll see people that have deeper pockets, that are running big subway ads or billboard commercials and TV commercials. And, um, you know, I always go back to, like, is the product actually better? Um, and so when we look at our branding strategy, usually it's really coming from how do we highlight that product story in a, in a really compelling but also educational way.
0: Give me an example.
1: Um, so, for example, we... We launched in 2013 a canvas weekender bag called the Catalina. Um, and at that time, there weren't a ton of products that had like uh, a bottom shoe pocket to keep your dirty shoes separate from the clean stuff. Um, yeah,
0: have you seen all those people They're just? the shoes right it's into the... Gr-
1: yeah it's gross that's why we Who are these people <laughs>
0: well that that's you need what... like a targeting campaign <laughs> for them.
1: yeah yeah that's i mean that's why we created the product um and then we got all this great feedback on it uh and then in 2016 we introduced a deluxe version um and since then it's been now one of the top selling products uh, in our line and we've had a number of brands both large and small that have mimicked or y- use that product as inspiration and so what we've started. That's a nice to way of putting it. <laughs>
0: yeah, you mean copycats? Yeah, the way, they're known. Yeah, as interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll, mean, we'll get back to that in a minute. But okay, so you 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 create. You're sort of iterating, iterating, and you're building things on top of it, and you're using. How are you communicating that this product is truly different? So,
1: so we've we've started to do more and more like behind the scenes product design stories, and really getting into the specific thought process into why it was was made, and so. You know, we didn't originally do that for this product. It just, you know, it was different and people wanted it and now it's become popular. And so just last year we, we released like, you know, we just did a simple blog post. That was my brother's sort of design research and his design thinking behind it. And I think it really resonated with the people, particularly with the people who had the product mm-hmm. and, and understood that this was one of the original, you know, styles. And so, yeah, we've been starting to do more and more of that. And I think, because of our stories a family business, because of our uh, authentic roots, people really appreciated the fact that it wasn't this glossy campaign. It was just like a simple blog post. My brother had sketches and he had photos of like his friend that kind of inspired him. And yeah. you know, there was just- It feels real. It, yeah, it feels very real.
0: That's a really interesting point because you are, and you know, you just mentioned kind of people doing similar things. Look, at the end of the day, I, I've said this and I've asked a lot of founders this on this podcast, which is for me, you know, when you look at a lot of these so called direct to consumer comp- companies, startups, however old or young they are, it, the products themselves are slightly different each time. But for a consumer, sort of just shopping for the thing, it's very hard to get that hey, look, this craftsmanship is actually better. Or this strap, for example, is actually different. And so it does start feeling like a lot of these companies, because it's so commoditized, end up just, they're just marketing companies. So the people who end up just doing a, Better job at marketing for sure wins out, and that's where there's this like sea of sameness. And you know, a lot's been written about the aesthetic and <laughs> et cetera. You right. know, the millennial pink time right. of a couple of we years ago, pink. right? Love it. <laughs> um, but, but then, and then you're there. And yes, of course, as a founder, you're saying, "Look, I am different, and I know I'm different." But yeah. how do I then tell people? Because, and then people are starting to do similar things. There are product yeah. attributes you have that were unique at the time you launched, but they're also not difficult to copy the actual attributes how do you manage that as sort of like but this is who i'm as a company and i have to make sure i'm you know communicating that
1: well i think to address the first part of that comment which is you know i think now with a lot of brands they or a lot of d2c companies they launch and they think they're launching a brand um my background is actually in big advertising i used to work on like dove you know converse and all these big brands And, you know, when you work in that type of environment, like you're just trying to build on a pre-existing brand. But when you launch a company, in my belief, you're not really launching a brand, you're launching a company and you're launching products or services. And the brand is established over time through the relationship that people have with that. So for us, we've really just tried to focus on, if we do branding, it's around those distinct product features that we have. And we genuinely believe like our products have better design and so once we do that and people actually have the goods in their um in their hands they have a really strong connection with our brand regardless of whether we spend big dollars on facebook or instagram and regardless of whether we have a great logo or Mm -hmm. you know use millennial pink (laughs) um and i think that's fundamentally fundamentally why i think we've continued to grow despite not having to you know outspend some of our competitors
0: that's that answer is d- very different from <laughs> yeah. from a lot of, a lot of, of lot people. Of, yeah. And and I do understand the other side of it, which is that you kind of have to compete on brand because there might not be anything else there. There might be a I mean six the, different lip glosses. Yeah. And so then your lip gloss is better because yeah. you know it's branded better. There's yeah. a story behind it. There's a there's an affinity to the lip glosses brand yeah. that then just doesn't exist and, anywhere.
1: And and you know, I'll make the statement that i I really do believe that the brand is super important, but the product and the brand, if you can do both really well, then you're you're golden. And so if you look at you know even a company like Nike, it's like they do great marketing, but they also have great shoes that are super well designed uh, that are unique and distinct. and so, I think for us, we're always trying to hit it from both angles. Um, You know, when we started, we didn't have big budgets, so the branding budget was, like, very minimal. It was just we could only send emails. We could only – like, I was the designer and art director and producer all myself, um, and so, you know, we had limited resources. So it was more skewed towards let's just focus on the product. Let's make sure people have our products, and then word of mouth will create this organic brand um, and and following for us. So now it's sort of – Balanced out a little bit more, but, you know, we're still not super funded, super rich, uh, deep cash flow pockets. And so, um, yeah, it's it's always that's probably the biggest struggle as a CMO is like, you know, working with the
0: constraints. That makes sense. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. OK, we're talking about product and brand and sort of a really interesting discussion, really, on how do you market when you sort of don't want and don't have a lot of money to A kind lot, of market yeah. the way sort of, especially right now with kind of the direct-to-consumer playbook, et cetera, et cetera. Why didn't you take funding?
1: I mean, we, we never really, I think early on, we never felt like people wouldn't want to, in, in all honesty. Um,
0: Because at the time, well, it is true that sort of when you guys started, there wasn't really this idea that like VCs would fund consumer goods. It was software and tech. And I think there's still sort of a relative surprise and a kind of quietening down at the market saying, maybe we should have funded all these consumer goods. Consumer (laughs) goods are hard to fund and you don't get, you know, you're not going to get a hundred million dollar business most times.
1: Yeah, it's it's not, you know, when you have a consumer goods uh, company, it's it's harder to scale overnight just because of the supply chain constraints. But... Um, you know, we weren't coming from the industry and we weren't coming from like, you know, fancy MBA background. So I think we didn't, you know, we didn't feel comfortable going that route just because partially we didn't know it. Um, and we were just so focused at the, the challenge at hand and, and, you know, we were just so f- focused on making the stuff and selling it. And we didn't, I don't know, it, it, it's like 10 years later and I, I, I'm thinking about, back about it and why we didn't do it. And, you know, honestly... I'm not sure I actually have a really good answer (laughs) for that question, but, um, you know, it's been, you know, like I said, it's been challenging, but at the same time, I think uh, it's been, I don't want to say freeing in the sense of, like, we've been able to grow when we needed to, and we've been able to not grow when when we needed to, and so we've had,
0: we've been able to do things on our own terms. um, Like what? Give me, give me an example of what that means. Cuz I have heard that a lot before like, you know, having funding is great, but then I have right. a lot of things that obviously cuz you've given up part of your right. company. But what are those things?
1: So so like like last year, you know, with with tariffs and, you know, the changing supply chain landscape, it's we've had to completely alter our supply chain strategy. And okay. so doing that, you know, there it just makes it very difficult then to produce and sell, you know, at a certain scale. So That was a situation where last year we were like, okay, let's, you know, let's focus on updating the supply chain uh, and focus less on like just acquiring customers at a really high high growth rate. So um, there are external factors that happen that we just can't control. And so, you know, I think um, when we didn't have to answer to an investor that's really pushing for that, um, I think it really helped us manage and navigate those waters um, better.
0: Do you feel like your growth has been, uh, you know, we use the word sustainable a lot. And what does that mean when you say sort of like, you know, your growth's been sustainable? That's a good question. Is it just a different word for like slowly? But like, <laughs> what? Because I think it's a good point. I think there is a lot, there is an argument to be made, and we won't know because hindsight, et cetera. But in, you know, a few years, we might see that a lot of companies just were Under so much pressure to hit that 50, 75, or 100 million dollar ceiling that they kind of burned out. They were spending, yeah. you know, $80,000 on marketing when they didn't have $80,000 yeah. spent on marketing. And but they had to because if they didn't market, they would die today, not tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't think it's another word of saying slowly, I just think it's a it's a it's more about, like I said, like there are certain times where you can't control the growth, like there's certain times where. You know, Oprah talks about your product, and you just, just you know, <laughs> you, you sell out of it overnight, and you, you know,
0: Megan Markle, where is it? Right, you can't, it. yeah, I think we had that with Rothy's, yeah, and, yeah
1: you can't yeah. control that. Um, but I think it's more about just approaching it from the standpoint of let's not just grow because that's a sales figure uh, goal. Let's grow because hey, we want to actually have more environmentally friendly products. We want to actually offer like paid you know maternity leave we want to have like an in-house daycare center we want to do all these things for the organization and for the for the company and i you know i think for us we approach it like that where you know we're growing because i want to be able to offer these things for our team Mm -hmm. and for us to have uh, a really awesome work environment um not necessarily to pay off investors or to you know fatten the pockets of vc funds and so Um,
0: You can grow on your own terms.
1: You can grow on your own terms, and um, you just do it for a very different reason. And I think being a family-owned business has, like I said, been really hard, but it's also allowed us to kind of stay focused on that long-term sustainability uh, path.
0: What about kind of, you know, speaking of factors sort of kind of beyond your control, which is— Acquiring customers is harder. It's just expensive on Facebook and Instagram. And you're not doing TV ads and it's too much money there. And so what does kind of the path lie? I mean, sort of marketing gets like this like rep. And yes, you've got a great product, but there's no use to it if you don't have to tell people. So what are you spending money on and how do you decide?
1: I mean, we still... You know, don't get me wrong, we still spend quite a bit of money on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> Who doesn't, media, honestly? You know, and, and so, but I think we, we do sponsor a lot of events. We're getting our products, at, you know, in front of real people in real life situations. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to do more like community events and management. Um, and, you know, also just really going back to those loyal customer follow- followers that we've built over the past 10 years. And so... I think, you know, if we really do have, like, loyal customers, then I think uh, acquisition costs will be cheaper if if we have people that are vocal and passionate about what we're doing. Um, So, you know, there's a lot changing at the moment. There's, like, cookie Armageddon with, like, (laughs) third-party cookies. Oh, you're
0: calling it cookie Armageddon. We want cookie (laughs) Uh, Um,
1: So, you know, there's a lot of... Does that affect your business? Oh, for sure, for sure. Retargeting? Yeah, with retargeting, but... Um, you know everybody's gonna have to adjust to it um, and it's interesting because I think you know I, I've been reading and hearing about all, a lot of the DTC brands that complain about the rising acquisition costs and sure. I kind of I kind of feel like it's like the people who move into a cheap neighborhood and gentrify it and then complain about how it's too expensive <laughs> like we've created the problem ourselves because it's it's all based on a bidding structure sure. right so if you're willing to Overbid, then obviously the average price is going to go up. So I think now that, you know, if there is a bubble and it does burst, you know, theoretically, if you can sort of weather the storm, you may, you know, I think there will be some brands that benefit from lower costs. But there will be a
0: shakeout, which is fine.
1: Potentially, yeah. Because
0: there's, again, back to my point, there's too many. Right. There's too many in every category. There's 170 mattress brands.
1: Right. And so I think that's why, like, managing growth and doing it at – the right level, that's going to be the hard part for a lot of brands. Is like, obviously, nobody doesn't want to grow. Sure. Um, but it's just at the rate in which you do it that I think is is going to be difficult for people to navigate.
0: So what kind of metrics do you, you know, both as CMO and as a founder kind of prize yeah. more than anything? Because you mentioned, yes, acquisition yeah. costs, like, what are you going to do about that? But what kind of metrics are you looking at, especially for the health of your business? Like, yeah. what matters?
1: Um, I mean, as a, as a CMO, you know, it's different than as a business owner. Okay. So as a business owner, it's it's there's basically how much you make, sure. how much it costs and the difference. And so for us, it's... And you've
0: got a good margin and that's not that's y- something you've been y- able to hone, yeah, essentially. Yeah,
1: and I, I've always lamented the fact that like in marketing, you know, ROAS is a big metric, but it doesn't factor in profitability. So, you know, I think that's something that uh, we pay a lot of attention to, but you also have to go that extra layer of understanding... If it's Forex, ROAS, is that profitable? You know, because it be it could be <laughs> a very sure. unprofitable metric. Um, so I get asked that question a ton, and it's a really hard one to answer just because I I tend to look at the marketing metrics as guidelines, but at the end of the day, as a business owner, I'm really more concerned about the top-line revenue and the profit.
0: Are you looking at growth rate differently? Um, Again, going back to that theme of sustainability.
1: Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, but you know it's not you know we set our our targets in terms of growth rate but sure. there's also the targets in terms of profit and you know cash flow and all those important you know fundamental business metrics so
0: what's your exit strategy do you have one
1: uh, we don't I, I don't think we have one at this point <laughs> <laughs> i just feel like that that term to me like it's crazy it's like it's exit it just sounds so finite it just sounds like it's like the end of your yeah end of the world type so i I don't know we 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 haven't really talked about that and that's not something that's like top of mind i think stay the course yeah we're just we're just really focused about building what we've uh what we want to build and continuing i mean this is our 10th year so it's it's just crazy to think that we we're still around after a decade and talk
0: about weathering the storm yeah
1: yeah um And, you know, we want to be, like, a brand like Patagonia that's going to be around for decades, that's making a positive impact on the world, that's doing, like, good things, that's a conscious company, uh, but still making really good products and still doing really good things, so.
0: But you don't want to go to wholesale, you don't wanna be you don't wanna to go to a bunch of department stores and say, Hey, stock our stock all our bags. You don't wanna go on Amazon. You don't wanna do all that. You wanna do this, but you also wanna do it yourself.
1: I'm not I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna say we don't wanna work okay. with wholesale or yeah. retailers or, or partners, but I think we, we will only do it if it if it makes sense and if it, you know, fits the the vision for what we wanna do. Um, you know, Amazon's an interesting <laughs> It's an interesting partner that, you know, a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with Amazon, and I think uh, we're definitely considering it. Uh, I mean, it's hard to ignore. The thing with
0: Amazon, it's sort of like the Facebook thing. Like, you know it will work. Yeah. It's just, will it work for you?
1: Right, right. So, um, we're we're definitely, we've had conversations with mm-hmm. all of the above, and, um, you know, it's something we've considered. So... If the time is right, then we'll do it. If the time's not right, then we won't do it. It is interesting
0: because it's like there's so many people I've talked to who sort of have this like puritanical focus on like, no, we are so DTC that no doors. Right, right. And I think that again, the tides are turning. Like we've had investors on here that say like, I'm not even going to talk to you if you don't at least have an idea that you might one day go into retail.
1: Yeah, for sure. You can't close the door for sure. And you got to go where the customers are. Like if the customers say all of a sudden say, hey, we don't, we're not, never going to buy anything online, then can't can't not go
0: (laughs) too bad figure it out Um, Mm -hmm.
1: but yeah I think we I mean we were kind of like an accidental DTC company like we didn't really we started before the term even existed um, and now it's it's such a big kind of thing and um, we just kind of fell into it
0: yeah well it's worked out great yeah (laughs) Sounds good. Derek, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: And thank you for listening. That's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre bien who also did our amazing theme music. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, and leave us a review and a rating. Thanks again for listening.